0: Please turn with me to uh, um, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter twelve. As you're turning there, I'll just uh, just acknowledge that we've been away from Romans for a while. Some of you may be familiar with that evangelistic tool, the Romans Road. It's a way of walking people who are not familiar with the gospel through the sort of the rudiments of the gospel. We've been off the Roman's road for a while. We've stopped at some folk places along the way and visited some other people and so now we need to get we need to get back on the Roman's road. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to get back on the highway. So read with me beginning actually at verse 1 of chapter 12 reading through verse 8. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, and do not be conformed to this world or to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, uh, be with us as we think about your word, as we consider your word again this morning. Help us to see where we are, who we are. Help us to be molded and shaped, fed and nourished as you come by the power, the presence, and the person of the Holy Spirit to take this word and press it into our souls. Do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here we are back in Romans, back in this letter that has been a staple for Christ the King for the last four and a half years, been in and outed over that period of time. Uh, but being back in this, it's clear at verse 1 of chapter 12 that we're coming to a new portion of this letter, a new section of the letter, and then in verses 3 through 8 we're in the application of what Paul's talked about in these first 11 chapters. It's the, it's the working out part of things. And this very often is how Paul structures his letters. very often from doctrine to practice, unpacking, exposing the gospel in its fullness. And then moving from the gospel in its fullness to its its implications and its applications for us. That's the basic structure of this letter. The letter moves, and I want to camp on this uh, because I need to be reminded of it. Uh, and I suspect you need to be reminded of it as well. The letter moves from an explanation of what God has done now to what all the way through chapter 11, Paul is outlining the gospel. He's doing it for a particular group of people, people who have particular concerns and needs and interests. The way he talks about the gospel is a little bit different from the way he talks about the gospel as he writes to the Ephesians or to the Colossians. These letters went to real people living in real places in real time. And Paul's a pastor and he's mindful of the particular concerns and interests that these folks have. And the needs that they have. And so he shapes and fashions his communication of the gospel with those needs in mind. But the general idea here is that in this first part of the letter, Paul is talking about what God has done. In Romans 1.1, he identifies himself as a servant of God Commissioned by God to be a preacher, a proclaimer, it's a rough paraphrase, of the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Now going back four and a half years, or or maybe actually just a few weeks, because I think I reminded us of this, that is a riveting phrase. The gospel of God, the good news of God. When you think God, do you think good news? Or do you want to duck for cover? Do you want to crawl under a chair? When you hear good news of God, does that create a cognitive dissonance for you? Because when you think of God, you think holy, righteous, just, terrifying, and and you are in view of that, finding yourself somewhat afraid and uncertain. Good news, the good news of God, the gospel of God. And remember that it's two things. It is the good news that comes from God, most certainly, but the critical thing is that this is the good news about God and about what God has done. And we say over and over and over again, I said it just a month ago, the thing that distinguishes christ I think I said it last week, the thing that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion of the world is that in every other case it's all about what you must do in this case it is about what God has done and that's the focus in these first 11 chapters you might remember that in the first 11 chapters there are only 3 commands 3 imperatives right we make this distinction between Indicatives and imperatives. What are indicatives? Well, an indicative is something that indicates something, right? And the first 11 chapters is filled with indicatives, indicating things. What things? Things that God has done. What are imperatives? They're commands. This is what you must do. There are only three of them in the first first 11 chapters. And they're all in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, and verse 19. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Let not. It's an imperative. Don't let it happen. Verse 13. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Then, verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to law, more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. It's like Paul can't help himself. He knows that he's going to get to the imperatives and it's going to come in chapter 12. And when it starts coming, it's going to be a tsunami of imperatives. But here, it's like he can't help himself. He's thinking through the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. And particularly in chapter 6, where he's talking about our union with Christ and the fact that in Christ... Because through faith we've been connected to Christ, we are actually crucified with Christ, dead with Christ, buried with Christ, and now in Christ raised to newness of life. And he can't help himself. It's like he's saying, can't you see the implication of this? Everything is changed. Everything is new. You were dead, now you're alive. You were in prison, now you're free. You were plagued by unrighteousness and sin. Christ has delivered you from that. So move in the direction of it. That's why verses 20 and 21 of chapter 6, Paul says this when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were free. You have to worry about righteousness, you have to think about righteousness. But in that freedom, again, this is a paraphrase and unpacking, in that freedom, you were in prison and you know you are in prison and then in verse 21 he says what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed the end of those things is death it's like i mean this is this is great counseling method folks people come to me they say they're struggling with a the problem they you know the sin it's this stuff and the question you want to ask is how is it working for you How is that working for you? That's what Paul's saying here. Don't you remember? Don't you remember being in prison? Don't you remember how dark and oppressive and life-denying it was? You've been set free from that, so now move in the direction of righteousness. Why wouldn't you? Why, like a dog returning to its vomit, would you return to your sin? It makes no sense. We all do what you see, but what is Paul doing in this passage? And in these first 11 chapters, he's trying to help us see the greatness, the magnitude, the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ. He's focusing on God's work in our behalf and that it is all, start to finish, of grace. All of grace. Start to finish freely given. Received by faith to be sure. Worked out in our lives to be sure. But start to finish. Your salvation is a gift of God's grace. Remember Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. And even this faith this instrument, this means by which you are saved and are being saved, even this faith is the gift of God so that it is not a result of works so that no one can boast. Look, I'm way more righteous than you are. That's why I wear this robe and do what I do on Sunday mornings. (laughs) Nah, Ray saying, I don't think so. I don't think so either. But even if you could measure and quantify comparative righteousness, no matter where you are on the continuum, Paul is saying you must understand it is all a function of the reality of the grace of God, appropriated by the gift that he gives, the gift of faith. Let me work this out with you in a couple of very specific ways. And, and this may be, this may be sort of technical and kind of theological and stuff, but there's a point to be made here. So follow along with me. When we say that our salvation is all of grace appropriated by faith. We're saying that it touches every aspect of your salvation. Think about justification. Justification. This act of God in which God, on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, declares a sinner to be innocent and positively righteous, therefore fully accepted by a holy and just God. There's a lot of confusion out in the church about the nature of justification, what it is, to whom it applies, how a person is justified. To me, that is very puzzling. It's very puzzling that you could read Paul in Romans or Ephesians or Jesus in the Gospels and conclude anything other than that a person, an individual, gains final and absolute acceptance with God on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross appropriated through faith. It's inconceivable to me that you could read Paul, read the Gospels, and come to any other conclusion. But people do. And as a result, there's confusion out there about it. We sing the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But very often our hymns are better than our thinking. Somebody else's thinking is better than our own. So there's a good bit of confusion out there about this, and I'm convinced it's because of bad teaching and because of too little teaching. Bad teaching and too little teaching. And that fact, the reality that these things are not dealt with as fully as Paul deals with them in Romans, the fact that these things are not dealt with as fully and as widely, not only from a doctrinal or a theological or an expositional perspective, but from the level of implications, what this means for people, that results in problems for folks. That results in problems for folks. It results in problems as people seek to walk the Christian life. it It poses pastoral problems for those who have to deal with people by helping them get clear that they are accepted and what that acceptance means. Right? I mean, I could illustrate this in so many ways, but I remember a conversation with a woman who knows the Bible better than I do. And we're in a conversation outside a school. I'm picking up my daughter. She's picking up her daughter. She's a member of my church. We get into this little conversation. I say, how are you doing? And it becomes very clear that she's laboring under guilt because of besetting sin, right? That perennial thing, that thing that just nips at your heels like a little poodle used to nip at my heels when I would deliver papers on my bicycle. And these little yappy dogs are relentless in their yappiness. Besetting sin. And she's troubled and she's plagued. And I said, you know, I don't want to be unkind here. But the sin you think you're committing isn't nearly as big as the deeper sin you're committing. (laughs) What's that? The deeper sin is in not believing that the death of Christ upon that cross is sufficient for the totality of your sin, whether besetting or of any other kind. And so we talked about it, and there was actually some relief, because there you can repent and you can say to the cross, you can say to Jesus, Jesus, forgive me again for failing to believe that your life of obedience and your substitutionary death are insufficient for the totality of my sin. And Jesus, with a smile on his face, throws his arm around his beloved sister and says, peace be to your soul. You see, when folks don't understand justification, it has implications for how they live their lives moment by moment, day by day. And these little yappy dog sins that snap at our heels can be our undoing until we remember. That's the whole reason for the death of Christ, is to silence those little mutts and drive them away. See, it has incredible implications at the pastoral level. But let me say this, and this is the point that I want to emphasize. That's at the pastoral level. It's one thing to recognize. That a right understanding of justification by faith has enormous personal, practical, and pastoral implications and benefits. But it is not a right understanding of justification by faith that justifies me. Do you get that? Do you see the difference? Sometimes when people talk about justification by faith, they talk about it as a litmus test of orthodoxy. But my brothers and sisters, it's not a litmus test of orthodoxy. Does it have enormous pastoral implications? Yes, it does. Here's the reality. I am not justified on the basis of a right understanding of justification by faith. I am justified by Christ. And when Christ sets his affection on someone and calls someone in the midst of time based upon having set his affection on that person and brings that person to himself, Jesus will justify that person whether I have it clear in my head or not. And why is that? Because the gospel is the gospel about God and what God does. It's my job to help us better understand justification by faith and its implications. But it's Jesus' job to justify. And a perfect Savior will justify a very flawed sinner who engages Jesus with the expression of a very imperfect faith. My understanding is imperfect. My faith is imperfect. And if my justification hangs on my understanding or the exercise of my faith, I am toast. Do you get the difference? Jesus justifies. The gospel is the gospel of God about who he is and what he has done. And the same can be said of sanctification. There's something of a controversy raging in our denomination over sanctification. It puzzles me. I don't get it. I don't get it because the confession of faith articulated a biblical and clear and precise understanding of an understanding of sanctification that brings great comfort and great assurance. Great comfort and great assurance. And I want you to listen to what the larger catechism says. When asked... What is sanctification? Listen to the first sentence. Sanctification is a work of God's grace. Whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of his spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ to them, renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts, and those graces so stirred up, increased, and strengthened as that they more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. Oh, that's comforting to know, isn't it, to you, to know that my progress in this in this bumpy road of sanctification, my progress rests not ultimately on me, but upon God. Sanctification is a work of God's grace. Look, those whom he has loved in Christ before the foundation of the world, you can count on it. He's going to get them home He's gonna get him home. Does he appoint means for me to employ? And as I employ those means, it's like taking medicine. It's like taking a good drug that works well to address a particular problem. Parenthes, parenthesis. I came home with a friend, I came home with a little traveler's issue. I can either gut it out, tough it out on my own, or I can take the medicine that a wise doctor knows will deal with that little monster ravaging my colon. And so I took my Cipro, and Cipro is a nuclear drug when it comes to those little critters, and within four hours, I was in great shape. I can tough it out on my own or I can employ the means which a good physician recommends and as I employ those means, good things start to happen. But in no way is that a suggestion that my ultimate progress in the gospel rests upon me. It rests upon God who initiates the work, who appoints the means and who through those means Moves me down the road. That to me is as clear as day. And how there can be a controversy in our denomination about these things, I don't understand. I just don't get it. Let me read to you also what the larger catechism has to say about this. Or, I'm sorry, the confession has to say about this. Listen to this, it's so wonderful so comforting. Those who are effectually called and regenerated have a new heart and a new spirit created in them. They are additionally sanctified actually and personally by the power of Christ's death and resurrection and by his word and spirit dwelling in them. Why, why is the word so important? Why are the sacraments of the church so important? Because these are the things that Christ himself employs as the risen, ruling, reigning king of glory to move you in the direction of conformity with his own image. Right? But who at the end of the day is the one who sanctifies? It is Jesus. It is Jesus. Start to finish. Justification, sanctification, Regeneration, adoption, reconciliation, redemption. Pick a T-I-O-N word. Behind it is the sovereign, loving, personal, redeeming grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul wants for us to see. Paul wants for us to see this in these first 11 chapters. He wants us to be gripped by the sufficiency of the grace of God for us in Jesus Christ. He wants for that to be central in our vision, that understanding. He wants for that to be foundational to everything we think about moving forward. And I'll say it to you again. I need to say it to myself, and I need to say it to you. The degree to which you lose sight of the sufficiency of the finished work of Christ for yourself in this particular moment is precisely the moment And to the degree, when you will begin to lose your assurance, lose confidence, begin to doubt whether God is really for you. That's why Paul begins this whole section by saying what he says in chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, brothers, and you remember that word, urge? It's from the same word that gives us our word paraclete, one who is called alongside to help. I urge you, I'm coming alongside you to encourage you in this, to admonish you in this, seeking to make clear. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies. What are those mercies? Everything he's talked about in in those first 11 chapters. Never, ever, ever lose sight of it. It's critical, it's indispensable that we grow in our understanding of the utterly free grace of God to us in Jesus Christ and how it touches every aspect of our salvation. This incredible mercy of God by which he delivers us from guilt and damnation and by which he frees us from sin itself. Never ever lose sight of it, Paul is saying. So then we come, now having come through those 11 chapters, we come to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Where Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of these mercies, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. The only logical thing to do. Present yourselves, body, soul, the entirety of your existence, as a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice. The dead sacrifice has already been killed and then raised and is now alive. So there's no need for any sacrifices anymore, whether literal or figurative, because the sacrifice is already made. And because you're united to that living sacrifice, you now are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And so it's only reasonable that you would present yourself to God in view of this. And don't be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove, so that you may demonstrate, so that you may put on display what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, there's an order to this thing. Having gone through the realities of the mercies of God, the greatness of the grace of God, we're moving from the indicatives to the imperatives But here before moving to those particular imperatives, Paul wants to remind these folks that there is is a real order to this. The ground of his appeal is these mercies of God. Based upon those mercies, I present my body to the one who has rescued me. I'm not a dead sacrifice, I'm a living sacrifice. And so then... Then you start to ask the question, okay, what do I do? Well, here's what you do. You remember two things. You remember this. You remember that you are being transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You present, you remember, you present, and then you remember again, I'm being transformed. Paul admonishes them to remember that. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Don't be conformed to this world. The mind. Critical to remember what the mind is. That the mind is connected to the heart. And as Jesus, through the means which he has appointed begins this work of transformation in me. What he's doing, he's flushing out from my mind, he's flushing out from my heart, he's flushing out from the totality of my existence those things that continue to connect me to the world that would demand of me obedience. He's flushing all of that stuff out and he's replacing this stuff with new, new, life-giving truths and realities. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And who's the agent of that? Who's the agent of this transformation? Get this, it's important. The agent of that transformation is the Spirit of God. This is Pentecost Sunday. What a great thing to be thinking about on Pentecost Sunday. And so Christ gives us this means and he gives us the Spirit And just as in the creation, the spirit and the word come together so that order emerges from chaos and beauty, beauty replaces ugliness and light drives away darkness, that's what's going on here. As the spirit of God in conjunction with the word of God and the sacraments of God effects this transformation of which Christ is the source. And what's the outworking all of that? Of all of that? The outworking of all of that is that the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, begins to be seen. It begins to be seen. It's in evidence. People say there's something different there. How did that happen? Why would someone do that? How could that be the case? The difference begins to become evident. It is put on display. And as you come to verses 3 through 8, with all of that in the background, all of that in the background, it seems to me that Paul is dealing with three things in verses 3 through 8. We'll look at them in detail next week. But it seems to me that he's encouraging us to think about three things in light of this. The beauty, glory, amazing realities of the gospel. The way this transformation works, as I present myself to Christ, Christ by his spirit through his word, the means he's appointed, transforms and changes me so that the will of God becomes manifest. What is good and right and lovely and beautiful. And as he begins to move into the particulars of that, it seems to me in these verses he's saying three things. I want you to think about yourself. How am I to think about myself? How am I to think about myself in relation to you? And how am I to think about why I'm here? How am I to think about myself? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. It's going to be fun to unpack that next week. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. How do I think about myself in relationship to you? Understand, you are members one of another. You're not your own. You belong to someone else. Well, you talk about something that will absolutely fly in the face of an individualistic consumerist culture to begin thinking through the implications of what it means for me to belong to you and you to belong to one another and not to yourselves? And then third thing, why am I here? You have gifts Use them for the well-being of the others. Let me just say this in closing, folks. I believe, I believe that a passage like this, how do I think about myself? How do I think about myself in relationship to you? How do I think about why I'm here? I think this has really, really big implications for us as a church in the midst of this transition. And over these next weeks, I'm going to plead with you that you understand that you don't belong to me. You belong to one another. You are Christ the King, Presbyterian Church. And over these next weeks, I'm going to beg of you that you be here and continue to be here for one another because you belong to one another. You are Christ's, to be sure. But you belong to one another. So there's a lot here, a lot here for us to think about as we move ahead in working through the rest of this letter to the Romans. This table is a sign of the unity that is ours in Christ, It is a sign that Christ is your center. It is a reminder that with Christ as your center. In him, you belong to one another. Let's pray together and then we'll stand as we prepare to come to this Lord's table. We'll sing before the throne of God above. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that start to finish. It is all dependent upon you. Your electing love, your sovereign regenerating work, your justifying and adopting grace, your sanctifying work in our lives and our final glorification, all of this, rooted, grounded now and forever in the limitless love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for particular sinners. We're staggered by it, God. May we be captured, captured and caught up in it, and more and more amazed by it. And may that be the case as we come now to this your table. We pray. We ask this. Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Let's stand.